0: You guys got me? There we go. Good morning, Romans chapter 4. Paul is talking about Abraham. By way of review, let's begin. Chapter 4, verse 1. What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, according to the flesh, discovered about this? That is, this righteousness of faith. If, in fact... Paul says Abraham was justified by works, then he had something to boast about. Not before God, of course. But what does the Scripture say? It says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. See, when somebody works, his wages aren't credited to him as a gift. They're an obligation. He's earned them. However, to the man who does not work, but does trust God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Now, David says just the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now... Paul asks, is this blessedness only for the circumcised, or is it also for the uncircumcised? Well, I've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. So under what circumstances was it credited? Was it that first covenant scene or that second covenant scene? Was it before... He was circumcised, or was it after He was circumcised? Which was it? Bible quiz time. It was before Jesus was circumcised. It was before He was circumcised that this faith was credited to Him as righteousness. So, He received this sign of circumcision as a seal... Of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was yet uncircumcised. So the circumcision was just a seal, a sign, something that represented something that had already happened. Therefore, Abraham, Paul says, is the father of all who believe, even if they haven't been circumcised, in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. He's the father of the uncircumcised, and he's the father of the circumcised, which means he's the father of Gentiles, he's the father of Jews who are what? Faithful. Those who trust God. And Paul goes on to say in our passage today, it was not through Torah that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he'd be heir of the world, right? Because Torah had not yet been given. That comes 430 or so years later on Sinai. Notwithstanding some of the creative interpretations of the rabbis, that Abraham just was studying Torah on his own before God gave it to everybody else. The patriarch? no, 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 seriously, the rabbis say the patriarchs were there studying Torah, that either he communicated it to them or or somehow they figured it out. No, he didn't get this promise through Torah, but through the righteousness of faith. See, if only those who live by Torah, if only those who are of Torah, literally, are the heirs, then faith is empty. The promise is worthless. Because Torah brings wrath. When there's no Torah, when there's no law, you can't break it, right? If you can't, If you don't have a law, you can't break the law. Once you have the law, now there's stuff that you can do wrong. And as we've been going through Romans, as we've been talking about what is going on with God's cosmic agenda, of reconciliation, with what God is doing, in and through his people, with what God did in and through Abraham, with the arguments that Paul is making to this church in Rome that has both Jewish and Gentile followers of Jesus. As we've been going through this, I have had lurking in the back of my mind a very, very important question, which is, so what? I mean, we could come here every Sunday morning to study this ancient text as a matter of personal intellectual edification. We could try to learn about the history of what God has done through his people so that we might learn something about what God has done through his people. But we read this text because we believe it is the very word of God. We believe it is given to us for a reason. We believe that it is living and active and that it has to cash out in the lives that we lead somehow, some way. This is not simply an academic exercise. And as I have been thinking about that for this week's passage, the phrase that keeps coming up for me has to do with the impotence of religion. So I think a lot of ways what Paul is saying here is that Torah does not do the trick because religion doesn't do the trick. Torah doesn't end up helping you the way it ends up getting used. Why? Not because it wasn't good. Paul's going to go into this in detail in the part we get to next year not because there was anything wrong with Torah, not because there was anything wrong with the God who gave it to us, but because it ended up getting abused, ended up getting hijacked. And the very same thing is true of religion generally. Torah shows you, Paul uh, Paul might well say, Torah reveals to you the reality that you are a putz. And religion does just the same thing. Torah says what you can and can't do, and then you end up transgressing that, and then you're in trouble. That transgression brings wrath, just, righteous, holy wrath. And Torah reveals that it's due to you. And religion does the same thing. There's a congregation near my house that has a sign outside that says, Read your Bible and pray daily. Now, there's nothing wrong with reading your Bible or praying daily. Let me just get that on the record. I'm not saying either of those is a bad thing. But if the sum total of our life in Christ, our relationship with the eternal God of the universe, has to do with whether we are following or not following certain strictures of religion, we are going to find that bringing not life, but death. Religion sucks. Religion cannot bring us peace. Religion may bring us false confidence if we do all the things that our religion tells us we have to do. If we do, in fact, read our Bible and pray daily, we may feel that we are somehow acceptable to God because of what we have done. Paul seems to be dealing with this kind of thing in the church in Rome. All the folks who were Jewish followers of Jesus who had been circumcised on the eighth day as they were supposed to, We're probably feeling rather comfortable about that, it seems. Paul says that is not supposed to make you feel comfortable at all. Because if you pay any attention, and you should be paying attention, then this should show you how far short you fall. Think about the the various aspects of religion as we practice it, right? Think about coming to church. Right? If you come to church every Sunday, you may feel like somehow you're right with God just because you showed up. If you miss church on a given Sunday, how may you feel other than well rested? How may you feel? You may feel guilty. Does that help you? Do you feel any peace from feeling guilty? No. So you got the person who's showing up every Sunday feeling smug and self satisfied, and you got the person who doesn't show up feeling guilty. I don't think that's any good for any of us. That's not to say you shouldn't come to church. (laughs) I'm just saying this good activity can be used for ill. Think about tithing. Some of you should think about it more than you do. Some people figure, all right, I throw in my 10% and I'm good. I've paid my God tax. and I don't have to think about it anymore. Other people are constantly feeling guilty because they haven't. Because they feel like they're not giving enough or they're not giving at all. Again, for the record, I'm not saying we shouldn't be tithing. I'm saying that this is the kind of thing that can, if used improperly, and it seems always to end up getting used improperly like everything else, this is the sort of thing that can end up bringing death for us instead of life. Same thing with service. I have a confession to make. I am not making a quiche for Saturday. The Hannah Moore shelter will not be the beneficiary of my culinary expertise. I have too much going on this week. I do not have time to do that. I've been feeling bad about that ever since Jen mentioned it, and especially since she sent me the email telling me that we really need more quiches. Now, what I could do is go ahead and make it anyway and trash whatever else I was going to be doing. Then I'd probably just feel bitter and resentful at Jen Hobson, which is not the proper attitude toward Jen Hobson. Other people will announce something that they're going to be participating in, whether it's a a political activism on one side or the other, and then... They'll look down on you if you don't show up at their rally. Or you feel guilty because maybe you should, but they just kind of don't care that much. Something that ought to bring life brings death. Worship can be like this, right? I mean, we, we are part of a community that values authenticity and integrity in worship. Not that that's a bad thing, but sometimes what that means is that people feel they have to have a worship experience. It gets really rough if you're leading worship at a big church where you got like three or four services. You have to have this mountaintop spiritual experience three or four times in the same morning. Sometimes you show up and you don't feel as connected. And then you think, what's wrong with me? Does God not really love me? Am I not really praying hard enough? Am I not singing right? Just singing. Singing can be a pro- can, can Can we be honest about this for a minute? I mean... When when we're singing and I hear somebody with a great voice, I feel, yeah, I don't have a great voice. I have a hard time singing in tune. Some people hear people sing harmony, and they're like, yeah, I feel guilty because I don't even know how to read music. Other people probably should feel guilty because of the way they sing and and don't. But my, my point is, there are all sorts of problems that can arise from things that are good but then get used for ill. Religion sucks. Of course, religion doesn't set out to do this. Nobody gets together and says, you know what I think we should do? We should set up this organization where we all feel bad if we don't show up and we feel bad if we don't experience something when we show up and we're supposed to read this thing that we feel bad if we don't read. We're supposed to do these things. We feel bad if we don't do them and we're supposed to give money to do this, keep this whole operation running, pay some guy who's going to get up every week and tell us about what we ought to be doing. That's a Let's, yeah, sign up for that, Right. No, nobody tries to do this stuff, but like everything else human, something good that God gives us can so easily be abused. I mean, I think about the, the Book of Common Prayer that we read on Sunday morning. To me, that, that's life-giving to read these beautiful words to enter into this worship. For other people, it reminds them of a really dead church experience that they had growing up. It can be used for good or it can be used for ill. when we set out to do this, we, we want to offer genuine devotion. We want to build a community of genuine and devoted followers of God. But everything about religion has the potential to do damage. Paul is dealing with this. And we have to deal with this. Religion sucks. Because if you have religion, then faith is empty. You don't really need faith if you have religion, do you? Right? You just do the right stuff and then faith can, you know, don't need it. If you have religion, then the promise is impotent. It's inoperative. Really, it's irrelevant. A promise that God would make to his people doesn't matter because you got religion if you have religion then you don't need god do you ultimately that's the problem is that religion becomes a stand in the very thing that is supposed to draw us to god ends up being the end of the road the thing that's a signpost directing us to something else becomes what we look at like the when you try to point up in the sky and say hey look at the star and your kid looks at your finger Today is the Feast of Pentecost, and Pentecost blows the doors off of religion. Go back with me to Acts chapter 2. Jesus' disciples, having seen Him ascend to heaven, are in Jerusalem waiting to be clothed with power from on high hiding out. And when the day of Pentecost, that's the day of Shavuot, this is the Jewish holiday that celebrates the giving of Torah. When day of Pentecost came, they were all together in this one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each one of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. All of them began to speak in other tongues, other languages, just as the Spirit enabled them. And they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. This is one of these holidays where every, everybody comes to Jerusalem from wherever. All the Jews show up. When they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment, <clears throat> because each one of them heard the disciples speaking in his own language. Utterly amazed, they asked, Aren't these guys all Galileans? How is it that each of us hears them in his own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, in Asia, Phrygia and Asia, Phrygian, Pamphylia, Egypt, the rest of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own languages. And amazed and perplexed, they asked one another, What does this mean? Some, however, made fun of them and said, Ah, they've just had too much to drink. Literally too much sweet wine. So they've been breaking out the white Zinfandel and tippling all morning. Then Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice. He addressed the crowd, Fellow Jews, And all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning, which isn't a decisive repudiation of the idea. But work with him. No, no, no. This is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams, even on my servants, both men and women. I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will prophesy. I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will turn to darkness and the moon to blood before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So men of israel my brothers listen to this jesus of nazareth was a man accredited by god to you by miracles wonders and signs which god did among you through him as you yourselves know bless you this man was handed over to you by god's set purpose and foreknowledge and you with the help of wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me, because he's at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope, because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the paths of life. You'll fill me with joy in your presence. Now, my brothers, I can tell you confidently the patriarch David died and was buried. In fact, his tomb is right here to this day. So when he was writing about this, obviously he wasn't writing about himself. He was a prophet. He knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, yet he did say, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, both Lord and Messiah, him whom you crucified. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, for your children, for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. Say, there's a promise that's not empty. There's a faith that's not vacant. Pentecost is the pouring out of the Holy Spirit in and through God's people. Jesus' spirit indwelling Jesus' people. And it blows the doors off of religion, unless, of course, we choose religion, which, as I mentioned, sucks. We always face this temptation, don't we, to make it just about doing the right things Following the right steps. Writing our checks. Again, not saying you shouldn't do that. Making sure we show up at all the right meetings. That is not what it's about. The fact is, every church is a human institution run by human people. We constantly have to fight. To make sure that what we do is done in submission to the Spirit and not simply as falling into the pattern of religion. We always have the choice whether we're going to follow the Spirit, be in step with Him, or whether we're simply going to dance to the beat of our own drummer. So pray for us as we lead, pray for yourselves as you're part of this community, that we would do what we do because it's what God's told us to do, because we're following him, not our own procedures, not our own habits. There's a lot of good to showing up on Sunday morning, and for many of us to singing, there's good to reading the Bible, and to praying, and to witnessing, and to serving all the things that we get to do in the name of Jesus. But the minute it becomes about religion and not the one true living God is the minute that it is cut off from its life source, is yanked up from the ground, that the plug is pulled out of the wall. Religion sucks. Thanks be to God. He did not come and die for us just so that we could have a different type of religion. Let's pray. Lord God, We confess that it is all too easy for us to work according to the flesh, not according to the spirit. We confess that for a time at least, it can feel like religious activity and observance brings us peace. But we know from our own hard experience that what it does really bring is guilt. After we get over our self-satisfaction. So we pray, Father, that we would not make religion something that's in the place of our relationship with you. We pray that moved by your Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we would live faithfully as your people, that we would be obedient to do the things you call us to do, but not just because we're checking off the boxes, but because we're faithfully devoted to you, I pray that we would be people who live according to the kind of faith that Abraham had, who trusted you, to whom that was credited as righteousness. And we ask this in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.